Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with with Martin Bad Mofo Willis. Wow, mm-hmm. that's right. No one's gonna mess with me. Mm-hmm. And you know yeah. why I'm calling you that this time? Have I ever called you that before? Not that I'm aware of. I've thought of it. I'm sure you have. That's a, it's a big yeah. compliment. That's like if I was to give an award. And like it would be the top award, it would be the bad mofo award. That's just how oh. cool I think that is. And I'm saying this because you have volunteered. I, I've had problems with getting guests this week. Of course, many of you know I was in Budapest for quite a bit this last week. Um, in fact, I had to do the show, the podcast part early because of that. Um, so, and and my guest has gotten sick, and I haven't been able to hook it up. So you suggested that we do just you and I, which we haven't done in a while, which are fun, I think, and hopefully some of the audience thinks so too. Um, so your willingness to do that and your suggestion um, for having us do this has won you the Bad Mofo Award. Congratulations. Wow. I take that with honor. Too bad wow. I don't have an applause um, you yeah. know, kind of noise yeah. to put on here, but... Or kind of cheesy anyway. Or a trophy. Yeah, Yeah, no trophy either. Wow. Virtual trophy. Good. Virtual trophy in hand. Mm hmm. All right. So, how have you been? I've been great, and I can't wait to talk to you about this Budapest trip. Yeah. So, we'll get into that. So, like I just mentioned, we don't have a guest. So, it's just going to be Martin and I BSing for this whole thing. But we have a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about my trip because. Um, it's related to Mars. Now, I'll, I'll warn you, even though you know a good portion of the show will be about this, it's not so much UFO-related. It is life-related um, and extraterrestrial life kind of related. We'll probably get into that sort of stuff. But it is um, about space and um, how close we are to being a multi-planet spacefaring species, which I think is really important. And uh, so we'll get into that. We'll also get into Spielberg and Close Encounters because that movie, the 40th anniversary, just came out. Um, And I'm doing a talk on Spielberg the Ufologist. And there's some cool stuff that Spielberg has said. Probably many of you listeners have already seen this new release, but... uh, uh, you know, Spielberg makes some cool comments about UFOs, and I have a lot of stuff on UFOs, but we'll get into that. And then also, uh, this new story I have written in the news and, and things like that. So we got a lot to talk about, but I guess the first thing we'll get into is news. What do you got for us news-wise? Well, you just reminded me of uh, back mm-hmm. years ago, there was a show on called It's About Time, and there's a there uh in the beginning of the show, the, the intro was, it's about time, it's about space, it's about 
two men in a lonely place or something like that. Hmm. Did you ever hear of that? It's about no. time. This sounds like some kind of BBC comedy. Uh, no, it was on U.S. Uh, uh, television. And uh, they come into, like, they go back in time as astronauts and land in a prehistoric place. Got to get so back I, in time. You know what? That kind of sounds familiar. Yeah, I remember watching that as a kid and just fascinated by it. Maybe that's mm-hmm. what got me into the UFO topic. Hmm. Anyway, I digress. That's yeah, and, I have like a TV Tourette's. Did you get that? Got to get back in time. Or it's kind of a movie sci-fi Tourette's. Well, Seinfeld <laughs> too. Sometimes, you know, certain words trigger and I just got to like... Boom, Yeah. Wow. It just comes out. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's kind of what right? happened with me with this uh, when you said that. Just like, wow. Yeah. Trigger. Yeah. What's going on with our brains? I don't know. It's a lot of synapses bouncing around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All so, right. So I, I do have uh, something I'd like to talk about. This is good. on the B- – go ahead. Okay. This is the BGR website, which is the, the Boy Genius Report. It's a it's actually a pretty cool website. It is. It's, it's a technology-based, um, influenced, and uh, and it was founded back in 2006. So they always have, like, really good science – articles um on this and so this was uh written by a uh, mike wayner and uh it's really um it's about the uh recent uh possible evidence of extra uh extraterrestrial life possibly in our lifetime and this goes back to the nearby trappist one uh you know you remember that one mm-hmm. um that planetary system that kind of freaked out scientists for a while, uh, well, they found that there is uh, possibly so, a significant amount of water, including uh, three worlds located within the star's hab- habitable, habitable zone. Now, there was uh, there was talk about how the uh, star probably destroyed the atmosphere and the surface water of the planets uh, before life could form, possibly like up to 20 oceans, Earth oceans, full of water would have dissipated in the last 8 billion years. However, this is like an inner planet. These three planets are like inner, uh, I mean, outer planets that would not be affected, and they still are in the habitable zone. So it's, uh, you know, it's actually possible that they could, it, they could be habitable. Mm-hmm. It's a very cool. interesting article. Did you read through it? A little bit, yeah. I have seen some talk about it. I think SETI wrote a story on this. There's been a few stories about this news that had come out. Um... But yeah, it is exciting. Um, this is through the Hubble Space Telescope, mm-hmm. this uh, imaging spectrograph uh, type um, imaging that they mm-hmm. did. Yeah, so some other planets with a bunch of water. Yeah, so I think that's pretty exciting because that's really the first I've heard of anything of anyone you know mentioning the possibility of water. Mm-hmm. Except of course you know in our own solar system and possible. Uh, you know, moons of Jupiter and things like that, but still. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's super exciting because there are so many and all the time more and more possibilities for places with life. Yeah, that have always been there, but we're just starting to see Mm -hmm. in our little corner of the universe. You know, and here's, and this gets into some of the other speculation. Here's why I think this is important, because a lot of the, um, let's say, alien 
believers, uh, for a lack of a better term, and I certainly do not mean that in a negative way at all, but a lot who are convinced, you know, that we're being visited, that um, that there's abductions going on, perhaps even aliens walking among us, um, it still makes sense, I think, for us to do the sort of exploration that we do and doing the science in the way that we do it, especially in the mainstream. And here's why. Because if we are being visited and um, there are intelligent civilizations um, visiting it and or interacting with us, they obviously don't seem to want us to disrupt our regular processes, or they would. I mean, at any mm-hmm. moment, they could show themselves and be like, hey, you know, those stupid probes, you're looking for microbes and crap. Look, we're here. <laughs> we, you know, we there's life. But they don't do that. Uh-oh, looks like a phone call. Hopefully somebody will get that soon. But the point is, yeah, they don't do that. So, um... You know, that, that kind of goes along the lines, like, if we are being visited and... It happens to be extraterrestrial visiting us, then it's a total like observation only. Mm-hmm. I agree. That's what it seems to be more of an observation only. So, you know, we still have to go through our processes. And, you know, recently um, we posted Jeffrey Bennett. He's a scientist, he's an astrophysicist. And um, he spoke in our 2014 UFO Congress. Um, and those videos hadn't got on our video on demand yet. So I just posted that on the video on demand. So if you're already a subscriber, you could go watch that. And uh, if not, you know, it's super cheap to go subscribe. It's cheaper to, or it's the same price to watch one video as it is to subscribe to the monthly where you have access to all the videos. Um, so hundreds of videos. Do that, eh, I think. It's the best deal, um, and it's worth it. Lots of great videos like this one. Um, Jeffrey Bennett is an astrophysicist, and his talk was a lot about speculation and and thoughtful um, speculation about if they're out there, who are they? And he believes that they are out there. He's like Michio Kaku and these others who believe there is intelligent civilization uh, life out there. And if they are interacting with us, how? And, um, you know, many scientists talk about this potential, even Stanton Friedman talks about this, this zoo idea. Stanton Friedman believes that, you know, maybe we're being held back, like, you know, they're making sure we're contained. Um, But others think that maybe we're just being watched to see if we can make it to the next level. And that next level would be able to, you know, perhaps go out into space peacefully without destroying ourselves. So it seems like we're still intended to go through our processes and do things on our own. Um, That there is no savior coming. Um, You know, for decades, people have thought, oh, it's right around the corner. Aliens are here. They're going to show themselves tomorrow, you know, and. As long as I've been in this, as long as Valet or some of the beginning people have been in this, people have been saying that sort of thing, and it doesn't happen. So like you said, it seems to be, if it's happening, more observational, and maybe we have to reach some point. But if we have to reach some point, that means we have to do the work to get to that point. So we have to continue to do the work that we do. You know, you wonder, though, uh, you know, there have there has been some interference with nukes, which kind of takes it to a different level. Mm -hmm. Um, And you wonder if, 
for some horrible reason, we started engaging in nuclear war, if something could possibly happen. You know, maybe that's a little too far out there to speculate, but just uh, you just wonder about that. Or I do, I should say. I do, too. You know, there was a period of time where I was convinced that um, we wouldn't be allowed to nuke ourselves, that there must have been manipulation of an outside force who's come and turned off our nukes or just showed us that, hey, we're not going to let you use these big toys um, anymore, you know, since after, of course, right after we built them, we we use them immediately. But um, And we haven't used them since, and we're such a mess that it's almost surprising we haven't used them since. And now, of course, we're at a very scary time where they might be used again. They're certainly tested by people who kind of seem to be a bit out of control, uh, right. meaning North Korea right now. and Yeah, they so, better go have a talk with Kim Jong-un. Yeah, so, but I don't know if that is the case. Maybe like Jeffrey Bennett talks about in this talk, we'll be allowed to destroy ourselves because then we just don't make it. We're not worthy of joining this, you know, intergalactic neighborhood. Um, but uh, who knows? Who knows what might be going on? So maybe they... Like more along the lines of Friedman, they're containing us. They won't let us use these big toys, but they're still, you know, allowing us to evolve our our own, but just not destroy ourselves completely. I don't know. Um, all of this is completely pure speculation, though. I feel because I don't feel we have any hard evidence. Um, I, I, right. We've got, you know, I think some some decent evidence that something strange has happened with nukes. That's that's which is really strong stuff. Some of the strongest, but yeah. I think also uh, Stan Friedman has a philosophy that not only will they stop us from ourselves if they do that, but also that it would make the planet uninhabitable if they had any future, you know, thoughts of designs. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it would no longer be a, a an ideal vacation spot. Yeah, right. Not it a good all- place to get water. Irradiated, yeah, that would not be good. So who Mm. knows? I don't know. Weird stuff, but I don't know. For me, that's what justifies NASA and all of these programs. Even if you do believe we're being visited, we still need to get out there because um, if they're not helping, maybe we got to go discover them and 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 other life on our own. Still, that's right. Maybe we should meet them somewhere for a cup of coffee. Mm Hmm. You know, and I mean, there. we shouldn't stop unless, you know, if we're not showing otherwise that, you know, there's any help on the way. And, uh, yeah, I don't, and, and they, yeah, hopefully one day we can enjoy coffee with them. Yeah. But, you know, it's, we can't, you know, the thing that we often do, or, or I should say that I often have done is um, always try to philosophize the way I think that they would think, which is wrong, because we have absolutely no idea. I know, um, and in what ways they their minds work, mm-hmm. you know. But um, but we want to explore, and what would we do if we came upon an alien planet that was habited by intelligent beings, semi intelligent like us? I know. You know what we, if Mars had intelligent life that was not as intelligent as we are? And we would be, what would we choose to do if we were capable of examining um, that life uh, without being detected? Most likely that's what we would choose to do. Um, 
And it seems like we would even want to, like we do with animals, maybe abduct them in the middle of the night, um, check them out, them. and then yeah. put them back. Mm. Yeah, dart gun them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, I wonder how many years ago it was that um, science thought there was actually uh, canals on Mars and it mm-hmm. was habited. It wasn't really that long ago. No, and they were the convinced. They were convinced Mars was inhabited. Mm-hmm. Damn fools. Uh, I know, little green men. <laughs> yeah, wild, uh, crazy stuff. Yeah. So I guess ne- next, if it's cool, or do you have another story you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, I have some stories that I oh, can talk for about. It. But yeah. Anytime. Oh, okay. Well, um, this is totally un-UFO related. Can mm. I talk about that? Oh, geez. Better be interesting, it, Betty. I'll, I'll try. Okay. Well, this has to do with NASA, though. So oh, okay. Na- NASA has a... Um, there, there's been a lot of like news out lately that people are worried about the Yellowstone caldera um, erupting, which would mm. not be not be a good thing at all. No, uh, because there's been 2,300 earthquakes or so since June, which is way up. And uh, in the last couple of days, it was like a 4.1. And so there's there's some concern that the volcano could blow. But NASA has a, a 3.5 billion dollar plan that could keep Yellowstone from ever erupting. And it's basically drilling down into the magna uh, pockets and also extracting geothermal um, you know, energy out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a, it's really, um, if you search it online, you can find it out, but uh, find out the information on it. It is a, it is a $3.5 billion plan, but uh, that's what NASA is, at, is estimating. But I mean, it would save like the entire planet if there was a problem. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, it's it's kind of current news. That's why I thought I'd bring it up. And NASA uh, is involved. It is interesting. I mean, vol- the, the Yellowstone is like a mega volcano or something. It's like the largest category of volcano, and it would take mm-hmm. out yeah a good portion of the United States. Yeah, and could render you know a winter in the world until all the crops die and. Everyone goes bye bye. So I think three point five billion dollars, if it's a, a you know a trustworthy plan, is a very good idea actually. Hmm. Wow. And you think of the same thing about asteroids. You know, I mean, there's I know there was a an astronaut um, that was working hard to fund um, you know some type of detection system. And I don't know where that's gotten lately, but, you know, asteroids are something we really have to address because mm-hmm. it's happened before, mm-hmm. just like the uh, caldera erupting. It's happened before and it'll happen again. Mm-hmm. You know, I there was some interesting speculation. His name is Perkins, um, and he was a cattle mutilation uh, researcher. Uh, he actually went to Yale. Really interesting guy. Lives in the middle of nowhere in the San Luis Valley, um, David Perkins. And I know Chris O'Brien worked closely with him, the other San Luis Valley researcher on animal relations and stuff like that. And he theorized, he had this theory that we are, um, which makes sense that if you assume we're um, a part of, you know, a natural outcropping of a planet, you know, that life 
like us, you know, develops on a planet. And, you know, it's a natural occurrence. And that intelligent life uh, also is a natural occurrence. Uh, but it serves a purpose for the planet in that we become technologically uh, capable enough to protect the planet. So that's kind of our purpose. The purpose of our intelligence is to develop technology wow. that further protects the planet. So it's we're kind of a planetary defense system in the greater kind of natural uh, environment or system. Really interesting thought. And then his that thought is. was that a lot of paranormal phenomena it influences us it's kind of the planet influencing us to do such to do different things um and his idea is that ufos look very nuts and bolts uh ish because they're a sort of uh influencing us to move into to continue to develop technology wow that is fascinating it is fascinating cuz if we like you said, it's something we should do at some point. And I know there are some NASA projects on the book uh, is figure out how to protect ourselves from asteroids, especially planet killers, and, and move them off course so they don't hit us. And uh, in that way, we would be serving a natural kind of uh, purpose of protecting the planet. Wow. That's great. It's pretty That's great. deep, huh? Uh-huh. It is. And I know... Um, just to change the course of an asteroid, it wouldn't take that much energy. Hmm. You know, getting out there would, you know, to where the asteroid is in time. But uh, as far as moving it, you know, there's there's different uh, there's different thinking on on what to do to uh, change the track. And uh, you know, I've heard, I don't know, uh, I think it's in uh, 2036 or something like that. There's supposed to be a real close. Um, encounter, so to speak, with a planet killer. Hmm. So, I mean, that these are the ones that we see and we know about. They're out there. Um, but they're the ones that we don't know about that are coming in, you know, from the direction of the sun. Those are just something we have no defense at this point at all mm -hmm. against something like that. Yeah, this is scary stuff, man. You're getting into Yellowstone and asteroids. Wow. Things that I can guess. just kill us all at any moment. Am I still the bad mofo? Or, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good point. We might, might have, have to take to that away. Hand that back to you. <sighs> Jeez. Wow. But, you know, the silver lining is, or at least what the <laughs> takeaway should be for people, is to live every moment to its fullest. Wow, I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't have time to to be upset with one another, um, and all of this other bad stuff. We got to uh, live today, and uh, you know, be at peace with wow. right here and right now. I I'll, I'll take the takeaway from that. You like that? I like that. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got a. About a minute until we have to go to the break. So, of course, we are on KGRA, which is a lot of fun. Um, a lot of cool people on this station if you're listening to, he to here. So, we do take uh, breaks for KGRA. And then we also, if you're listening to the podcast, you just hear a, a short little music break um, until we come back 
But we are here to remind you with Martin Bad Mofo Willis. That's his new nickname. Um, he's going to get that on the back of his leather jacket that uh, you know he he uses when he rides his moped around town. But Did you know, uh, I knew oh. with your mm. helmet and everything. So, uh, so we'll be back in just a moment, and we're going to be talking about some other cool UFO news and um, talking about Mars and and Spielberg and and close encounters and all kinds of cool stuff. So. We'll be uh, taking a quick break. Come right back. Don't leave. You can go to the restroom or something, but beyond that, don't leave. And you can pause it if you're listening to the podcast, but then come listen to the rest. Listening to Open Mind UFO Radio, and I am here with Martin Bad Mofo Willis. He kind of got us depressed talking about some uh, things that could destroy our civilization as we know it and life on Earth uh, in general. But I don't think that this is any sort of like he's not some sort of evil genius looking to destroy human- humanity. It is more uh, a warning to humanity, and um, so. Although we had talked about taking away his bad mofo title, I think uh, uh, we'll keep it. Well, you could call me Little Mister Sunshine. <laughs> yeah, that's a good I guess. one. <laughs> wow. Yeah. All, All right. right. I'll try to be a little. I'll I'll look on the brighter side as we move along. Okay. So, do you have another news story? Well, uh, I think it's your turn. Okay. Great. Um, I want to talk about because this is a big big story. Um. There's just a lot to talk about. There's multifacets to this. And this is what people might have been hearing in the news lately. And it's gone all over the place. And mm-hmm. this is these new mysterious signals. And what I called the title of my story is New Mysterious Signals Detected by Search for Extra Intelligence Project. In other words, a SETI project. And just to clarify, luckily nobody's, I think people know, because I haven't gotten any backlash. This isn't the SETI Institute. So like Seth Shostak works for the SETI Institute. And typically when we hear about listening to signals and stuff like that, it's in relation to the SETI Institute. But the term SETI is actually anybody out there looking for extraterrestrial intelligence. So... um it's actually a broader term, and then there's the institute, which is often referred to as SETI. And I do that all the time. I call them SETI instead of the SETI Institute, like I probably should. Why is that important? Because this group who heard these mysterious signals is part of a different group. They're called Breakthrough Listen, and they're part of the Breakthrough Initiative. And we've talked about this a bit um, in the past, but not necessarily lately, uh, because the Breakthrough 
initiative was created by this guy, Milner Yuri, and uh, it's kind of exciting. So there's these billionaires out there, right, throwing money at different space projects. So, for instance, um, Elon Musk, you know, um, Jeff Bezos, even Robert Bigelow, who's our UFO buddy, are all trying to develop space uh, ships or space habitats, whereas uh, Yuri Milner decided to, and I think I said his name backwards last time, didn't I? It's actually Yuri Milner. He decided to look for aliens through this Breakthrough Initiative. There are three parts of the initiative. There's Breakthrough Listen, where he's doing the same thing as the SETI Institute, listening to radio signals to see if he can get signals. There was Breakthrough Message, which is kind of funny because this was um, uh, a project where they were going to pay someone a million dollars to come up with like a cool message to spe- send to aliens, but they never sent right. it. And do you know why? Do you know why? No. Oh, you don't? Well, one of the sponsors of the group is um, is is Stephen Hawking. And Stephen Hawking is doesn't want us to talk to aliens. Right. He's paranoid we're going to stir something up. Exactly. He's afraid they're going to come and get us, like destroy us. And the way he puts it is, you know, when the Spaniards came to uh, the United States or North America, it didn't go well for the natives. Um, that's one of his sayings. And I, I don't know. I don't agree with his point of view, but I guess it's a valid one. So he, I guess, w- was probably the one who got them not to send out these messages. But a lot of people argue, including Seth Shostak, that it's kind of too late. We've kind of mm-hmm. radiated radio signals, and we're like a big light bulb. I mean, we have literally lights all over the place. So um, we've got a lot of de- – we're very detectable at this point. Yes. So um, the third project was called Breakthrough Starshot. And so we'll talk more about this in a minute. But essentially what Breakthrough Starshot is, is they're working on creating these little space sails. And there's a tiny little chip on these sails. So what you do is you send these things out to to space. And then you have a laser that shoots at these sails. Um, it, uh, It pushes the spaceship along until it gets at a really fast speed and then these things float through space and he wants to do like a fleet of these tiny things because um there's a lot of stuff out there radiation uh, other things so all of them probably won't make it so to try to get as many to make it as possible and he's going to send these to alpha centauri which is the closest star system and then once these little guys get there they do some telemetry, they check on different things, take some pictures, and then that information is sent back to Earth. Um, however, it'll take years for that information to get back here because of the distances are, are so huge. This is many, many light years away. So It's like four, isn't it like four light years away? Am I thinking of something else? Um, let's see. Uh, Alpha Centauri is, well, why don't you Google it? And I'll, All right, I'll do that while you're talking. Go yeah. ahead. So Alpha Centauri, which is really far away. So that's his third thing. However, uh, what's exciting about these signals is that what they did is, as part of their breakthrough listen, is they listened to FRB 121102, which is uh, an area of space, a signal, essentially. 
FRB stands for Fast Radio Bursts, and these are, some of them are mysterious signals that we're getting from space. So radio telescopes are used by astronomers because they listen for radio signals uh, on these big telescopes, and different uh, cosmic events send out radio signals, um, black holes and stuff and, and different things like send out these radio signals and they can listen to those and figure stuff out about space. Quasars, um, etc. Quasars, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a good one. Good one. So these fast radio bursts are known because they are very short bursts and they're also extremely bright. And we don't know what they all are. Um, however, like I said, cosmic events create them. So it's not that mysterious when we receive them. However, there are a handful of these FRBs that are interesting because they repeat. One in particular is this FRB 121102. It was discovered on November 2nd, 2012. That's why it has this name. Uh, then in 2015, we found that it repeats, that there's been more of these one, more than one of these signals. Um, and then in 2016, they were able to trace it back to this galaxy that's billions of light years away, but there's nothing in that area that should create a repeating signal. And when they think about what this could be, cosmic events happen once. Like they said, some kind of star getting eaten up by a black hole could create something like this maybe, but that would happen once and then it's done. It wouldn't be like repeating itself. So they don't understand why it's repeating itself. And so that's why people have speculated that perhaps it's aliens. <laughs> so interesting enough, too, uh, the, before the signal was discovered, the New Scientist magazine had done an article on what these FRBs could be because there was a paper that came out speculating all the different types of, and these are scientists, and this is what's exciting about the time we live in, they're speculating the possible alien sources. So they're taking the stance that, okay, what if this is extraterrestrial? There are lots of scientists open to that idea. And they're saying, well, what could they be doing that would create this? And one of their ideas is they could be using one of these space sails like um, Milner wants to do. And essentially they're saying that maybe these are like lasers pointed at us, that they've got these giant space sails that they're flying, and sometimes when the craft is is not there, you know, they're shooting the laser, and and we can see the laser. Um, So maybe that's what this is. These are lasers powering giant space sails spacecraft. Yeah, so that's one of the speculations. keep our eyes open. I know. Wow. So uh, first of all, going back to the distance, the uh, Alpha Centauri is 4.37 light years from our Earth's sun. Mm. So, yeah, but it's still a long, when you're going a fraction of light speed, it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. So I know it's going to take many years for, uh, I don't know what the speeds are that they're expecting to get out of these little mini sails. We wrote an article and, and it's something like near light speed they can get. So I put the link in this newest article to that other article where we talked about that and the press releases back at the Breakthrough Initiative that talk about that so people can find that out. But yeah, I think it's near light speed, which is so they, um, pretty damn fast they can get, I guess, out there in space. And I guess this is technology that exists. Like we could actually do this and that's why they chose this project. 
So I wonder what if they just stop firing the lasers at them when they want to when they want to get signals back, which uh, again would take at least you know four. Well, the way four, space four works is kind of like the ice planets or ice levels on Mario Karts. <laughs> or, you know, um, and what I mean by that, or like asteroids, you know, where you, when you turn on your jets, like asteroids, you know, when you get to the speed you want to be at, then you turn off your jets because you're just going to coast. And in right. space, there isn't atmosphere to slow you down like there is here or, or gravity or things like that. Friction essentially caused by something else. So if you get a space sail up to, it's ultimate, you know, a, a really quick speed. You don't have to push it anymore. It just goes on its own. I think is the theory. Right, right. Nothing to slow it down. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, radio telescope that has received these bursts because I think that's fascinating. Um, all on its own. It uh, is it's the Robert C. Bird Green Bank Radio Telescope. Um. Well, I want to mention one more fact. Oh, sure. Okay. And the Breakthrough Initiative, in their press release, they make this point in that, which is that if, you know, that these signals are very far away and that it means they're very old by the time they get here and we're able to detect them. So these signals, even if they are from an extraterrestrial civilization, are like millions of years old already. Wow. So that civilization, if we find out, wow, this was an extraterrestrial civilization, it was one that existed at about the same time the Earth had some very basic, basic life. That's unbelievable to think of it in that way. Yeah, isn't that mind-bending? It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, that's why, you know, a lot of skeptics about us being visited by UFOs, you know, talk about the idea that we could line up with a civilization that is intelligent and still exists um, is very small. When they, you look at the Earth's model of uh, extinction, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's a good I'm, point. Some scientists have said, "Okay, maybe there's intelligent civilizations out there, but maybe they're a flash in the pan, and they're gone already." Like Mars, right. Mars was habitable before, you know, millions of years ago when Earth was not. So maybe That's life right. was there in abundance, and it's gone already. And that could be the case everywhere else. Yes, it lost its, uh, um, what is it, the magnosphere? I'm trying to think what that's called. Um, so the, the, the uh, you know, if there was any water, I'm sure there was water. I mean, there's signs of water. Um, all dissipated. Mm-hmm. Electromagnetosphere. Or froze. Uh, or it froze. There's lots of frozen ice. Yeah, there is. There is. Um, so getting back to this story, and is it okay to talk about the uh, telescope itself? No, that is okay. top secret. No, oh. yeah, if you have something interesting to <laughs> share about the telescope, go for it. Well, again, it's the Robert C. Bird uh, Green Bank Radio Telescope. And the collecting area uh, on it is actually 2.3 acres, which is huge. And it's uh, 76 metric tons. Now, Whoa. each wheel on the uh, on this thing rotates on wheels, and each wheel holds over a million pounds. It's 16 million pounds in total, and it's uh, 485 feet tall, which is 60% taller than the Statue of Liberty. 
uh, just amazing. It's an amazing structure, and I can't even imagine what that costs to build. So this is uh, collecting, um, you know, more data than I think I think than any other radio telescope that I'm aware of. Oh, I know there's that. Uh huh. It's going to say there's that, a good point. Yeah, there's that large one in South America, right? Yeah. And there is the um, the original SETI Institute one, uh, well, one that they used. I think it's UC Berkeley that's in charge of it, the Allen uh, Array. Uh, oh, the Array. Yeah. Uh, up in Northern California, right. Mm-hmm. So there's but that this, one. Yeah, this, uh, you know, separately, I'm sure those radio telescopes cover more area, but this is the largest single, um, you know, radio telescope, which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. To add, though, that the amount of data, um, you know, that reminded me the amount of data obtained from this telescope, the fast radio bursts that they detected recently with this Green Bay telescope, um, they recorded um, 30 minutes, 10 30-minute scans, and they were able to detect 15 bursts, which is actually a whole lot. Because, um, first of all, these are repeating. It's in the same area, so that's important. Fifteen times at least this thing has repeated. Um, And prior to these 15, there were less than two dozen FRBs recorded in the, like, seven years that we've been, uh, or 17 years that we've been, or 15 years, I guess, we've been looking at these things. So um, 15 is a lot. Wow. Yes, and I know this This is such a sensitive telescope that it could actually uh, detect energy as little as a snowflake landing on it. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Amazeballs. So pretty cool stuff. So this repeating, um, you reminded me something. It's kind of a tangent, but it's pretty interesting um, about... The about what's something I learned on this Mars TV show trip. Okay, do you have time to get into a tangent now? Yeah, I think we do. We've got a few minutes. You want me to talk about it? Yeah, yeah, this is good, man. This is good. Yeah, so Mars, like we just talked about, a lot of the water is trapped as ice. So, and this is what I learned from the consulting um, scientist, Stephen. Um, let's see, I've got his book right here. He's got a book that actually this Mars National Geographic Mars television show based the show on. And uh, his name is Stephen Petronek. And uh, his book is just called How We'll Live on Mars. And uh, it's a short book, but uh, he is a scientist and everything. Great guy. Um, He's published several books. And this is interesting. This book was published by TED Talks. So um, he's a cool guy. I spent a lot of time with him on that trip talking about all of this stuff. But he is a proponent for terraforming Mars, which he feels is not that difficult. Here's the reason why. We need to release, and actually they talked about this on the first season if you watch this, and he's the one who talked about it. He's the guy uh, with glasses. Um, He looks kind of like a science nerd guy. (laughs) Really cool guy. But There's already, what we have to do in order to terraform Mars is to warm it up because it's already got tons of water that is frozen. If we warm up the atmosphere, that ice will melt and then that water will be readily available 
and um, this starts this chain reaction where then it develops an atmosphere and everything. How do we do that, though? Well, he says, you know, we obviously are warming our own planet. And how are we doing that? By releasing CO2 in the air. Well, at the pools, there's tons of CO2 also trapped in this water and in these ice caps. So his argument is that all we have to do is find a way to warm the planet, even just a few degrees, and mm. that releases the CO2 at the caps. The CO2 then gets into the atmosphere, creates this greenhouse effect where it traps the warmth on the planet, and it's just chain reaction. He thinks it would take about 100 years, but that we could terraform Mars. Um, that is completely doable. Wow. Um, what are your thoughts about interfering with the way things are are presently? Do you Great think question. That I mm. asked him that question. And he said, well, here's the thing. It's no big deal because Mars is dead. He's like, Mars <laughs> right now is just completely dead. It's, it's a barren rock. It's a waste. So there's like nothing that we can disturb. It's a, there's nothing there. It's a barren waste. All we can do is improve it. Um, I think that's kind of a controversial view and not everybody would necessarily agree, but his view is there's, we can't make it any worse. All we can do is make it better, um, a better environment, at least for humans. So that's his, his argument. Isn't that amazing? Well, um, Again, what about the electromagnetic sphere that is no longer there and could was holding the like it holds our atmosphere in and uh, you know protects us basically uh, you know from the radiation of the sun. Now, what about that? That is a really good question, and you know what? That is one that I didn't ask him, and I thought about this talking with people later because I guess you know Mars has more of a solid core, whereas we have a mm -hmm. liquid core, and I think it's because of our liquid core we have these electromagnetic fields that protect yeah. us like you're talking about, um, except for at the poles, and that's why we have the aurora borealis because of crap coming in, the radiation and everything. Um, right. That is an issue. So um, that's something I didn't ask, uh, but that's a great question. Uh, but another problem is, so I went to Johnson Space Center uh, for a similar press event. And uh, this was for the TV show The Martian, or for the movie The Martian. And we got to speak with some NASA scientists who are working on the Orion Project, which is NASA's project to go to Mars. And they have an Orion module. Um, to that'll be house the people that will go when they go to Mars. And they're hoping to do this sometime like in the mid-30s. The issue is, he said, they don't know, they're not quite sure how to protect people from radiation on right. this trip. They don't know how they're going to do that. So another person on this show that I actually interviewed for this Mars television show, but this was months ago when the first um, uh, series was going to launch, first season, this guy Zubrin, and he is a scientist who is in charge of, uh, he's, he's created the Mars Society, which is this group who are advocates to going to Mars. So he's up on all the projects to go to Mars. And I told him, you know, the Orion Project said they don't even have a, a way to protect themselves from radiation. How are they going to do that? And he's like, what? He's like, that's easy. All they have to do is protect themselves with water. 
Um, water? Yeah. Oh, so really? I was like, hmm. So that's really interesting. But how the hell would they do that? So he kind of blew that off. And um, and I thought, you know, all of this is kind of theoretical at this point. I mean, Orion Project, we don't even know if that will get funding and actually happen. But what's interesting, and this gets into my trip and the whole Mars thing, What's interesting is that we are getting really close to going to Mars. Elon Musk seriously hopes to send humans to Mars within the next 10 years. Amazing, isn't it? Incredible. And wow. it used to be we, we laughed at Musk, you know, oh, he's got these crazy ideas. But he's been executing on all of his ideas. I mean, yeah. no one thought he would be able to have a, a spacecraft, you know, that that would be... Um, sending equipment to the space station, but he's doing it. Or to land. To re-land another mm-hmm. rocket, which is such an important feat. Nobody thought he could do it, but he's done it. Right. So now we have to take him very seriously. So let's take another break, if that's okay. Is that all right? Oh, yeah. Okay, good, good. You can go um, refresh your coffee and use the restroom if you have to. And then we will be back in just a moment to talk more about Mars. You're listening to KGRA um, and the podcast of Open Mind UFO Radio. Be back in a sec. to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and we are still with Martin Bad Mofo Willis. Ah, uh, I regained my title. You awesome. kept it. We never took it away. Yeah. Oh, we talked oh, about close. taking it away, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it'll, but it will rely on, and it will depend on your, your, um, your conduct during this last segment of the show. All right, we'll do a recap at the end. Mm-hmm. All right, so I want to ask you this. Okay. Were you able to ask the ultimate question, um, and that is, did this person you speak with think that Mars indeed had life? No. He does not believe that, but um, we asked, well, what if, like the the cliffhanger, and I have to be careful because I can't reveal any of the plot things for season two that I learned of this Mars television show. Um, but uh, at the end of season one, there had been a death um, and a few deaths. So, you know, there was an, a, a problem that happened. And so they were talking about pulling funding on the project and making everybody go back. 
Um, but they had found life. So they were going to be able to keep the project open and have a season two. <laughs> uh. um, you know, which prolonged the, the mission. His argument was that even if there was life, that terraforming is worth doing. Um, so, but you're right. If there was life, then that would further complicate things, no doubt. Right. And, you know, one of the things I've, I've actually thought of is I would think that if there was some type of life, then it seems like a rover should be able to find that, you know, that information. They can't. Um, yeah. I've had, I've talked to some scientists about this. Um, cause I do, I, I tread on these grounds. Of course, I'm talking to them about life and I'm moving them of course towards UFOs and stuff. And I, cause I, I try my best to, to ask them about that kind of thing in hopes that they'll give me something interesting to write a story about, to share with everybody. The problem with the rovers is they don't have the equipment to do that. So what they have equipment to do is to break up rocks and examine rocks and to um, discover the, you know, what these rocks are made of. But in order to verify life, and there's a couple of people, Ben McGee we've talked to, um, I've talked to a couple other scientists on the show even um, about this topic, and it just, it doesn't have the equipment they would need, such as microscopes and stuff like that, to be able to verify life. The only thing that they would be able to see is, is just that. They would be able to get imagery that may indicate something is, is a life form or was a life form. Um, and then, of course, they would need a lot more testing, but they would have to send something up there to test it or somehow retrieve that, which uh, we may have to wait for Elon to get up there to do something like that. So, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. the rovers don't have the correct equipment. Their Their mission was not to look for life. Wow. It just seems so important that uh, I thought the last one had equipment on board for that. but um, Their now, missions about- were to understand the makeup of the soil and the rocks and everything in order to prepare for future trips. So, for instance, ah. to find out how much ice is locked underground, um, what in other and the soil and everything, what how would they would be able to utilize that if they were to for further projects? Now, what about what about imaging? Um, there's been some really strange imaging, uh, some anomalies that are just really, really interesting. Did you speak to anyone about that? It depends on what. Um, now, they all agree that there are definitely interesting um, shapes and, and um, formations on Mars. Um, everybody feels that way, but a lot of people feel that they, and they are significant and that, you know, some of this stuff has led us to, to understand they used to believe there is no water on Mars. Now we think it's abundant on Mars. Um, you know, now we know there were flowing rivers and streams and lakes. I mean, we didn't Mm -hmm. know that or believe that just a few years ago. So, um, our views have changed on everything there. Um, I personally have not seen anything I think is indicative of life. I don't know if you're getting at that, Um, even though some people, even at the last MUFON symposium, had said that they thought, you know, some of these pictures were were of large dinosaur-type creatures. Oh, yeah. Uh, To me, they look like rocks. So, um, yeah, they, they feel there's a lot 
more mysteries to unravel, um, certainly. Uh, but there, at least especially Stephen, I brought this up, you know, this very topic. And his argument was, you know, we used to believe there were canals on Mars. We used to believe there were civilizations on Mars. So people looking at Mars and seeing things that they think um, are civilizations or, or life uh, has always happened throughout the entire time of us looking at Mars. So that's nothing new. But uh, we need, you know, further evidence to support whether or not any of those things are the case. And unfortunately, of course, uh, it's happened time and time again that uh, we've been wrong, that those things are not what we think they are. And, you know, if you watch the show, the way, what they're doing now is they are 3D modeling. The, the satellites they have around Mars right now take 2D pictures, stereoscopic, which allows them to do 3D modeling of the surface of Mars. So the detail that we're getting on the surface of Mars is is quite substantial, um, and it's my wow. argument when it comes to the whole conspiracy ideas that it's really difficult, especially at this time to, um, to, to hide that kind of stuff because it's being shared. It's right here on the national geographic television show and everything, you know, it's, it's more and more difficult to hide that sort of thing, especially because we're interacting. NASA essentially has become a support system for private enterprises because really, um, they, Zubrin felt this way, Stephen felt this way, they all feel this way that it's going to be Elon Musk who gets to Mars first, most likely. It will be some other third party that probably creates the first habitat because Musk is not necessarily working on creating a habitat for people. He's creating the, the, the bus system to get there. Means to, yeah. So, and we don't have a third party yet who has developed uh, a habitat. Of course, Robert Bigelow has developed a habitat. He wants to put it on the moon, but he doesn't have a big enough um, project right now He's not, uh, to actually make this happen. And he isn't looking towards Mars yet. He's looking at the moon, and, and he doesn't even have a ride to the moon yet, so he's going to have to figure that out at some point. Um, so maybe he will step up. Maybe he'll say, hey, Elon, you know, we want to be your partner to actually put this first habitat on Mars. Maybe that'll be the case. But uh, until then, we don't we don't have somebody doing that. So but because NASA is supporting private industry, they're, you know, that's essentially their role. So a lot of what they do is to share with um, others so that they can then build on that to be able to do some of these things. So, for instance, when, let's say, when Mask lands, chooses where to land, he'll be relying on all this imagery and everything that NASA's oh, sure. um, gotten. Mm -hmm. If Bigelow decides to build a habitat, he'll then need all of this 3D imagery and everything to figure out the best place for him to build his habitat. So all of this information is, is you know, all out there. So um, I think because of this, their information has to go to so many places. It's you know means much more transparency and and much more difficult to kind of hide stuff. In my humble opinion, of course, a lot of people will be like, "Oh, you're a sucker! You've drank the cool the NASA Kool Aid, man." So <laughs> well, you know, I, I want to talk to you about your trip, but just along the lines of what we're talking about right now. Um, uh, you know, people often talk about, you know, bases on the moon and people see shapes on the moon and they think it's 
you know, either bases or a bridge or, you know, a skyscraper or all that. I know it's, I, I think a lot of that's, I, it's called like pareidolia where, mm-hmm. um, you know, the psychological and that thing, your it's brain. kind of, yeah, your brain kind of makes an image into something you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I don't you think that's kind of what's going on when people are I do. You know, I claiming mean, the dinosaur bones and I would be more than excited to to see um, something truly you know that is indicative of some s- sort of you know technology or something like that. You know, one of my favorite um, concepts is this one called xenoarchaeology, and I had mentioned Ben McGee before. He's a you know, kind of a scientist who has worked for Bigelow, but he's worked on all kinds of different stuff. And he he spoke at the conference about xenoarchaeology, and it's this idea of what if we do find some sort of structure? We're going to need to then um, have astronauts performing archaeological functions, and which is completely different than what they're used to. So his argument is we have to develop this whole discipline of xenoarchaeology so we can teach the astronauts how to look into that sort of thing um, correctly and, and be careful and like an archaeologist would do. So um, I think that's fascinating. When I watch movies like Prometheus, I yeah. think it's a matter. I really, I'm excited for the potential of us finding ancient ruins or something like that. But uh, I personally uh, don't feel that, to me, those all look like rocks. I don't. I have not seen anything that has been convincing personally yet not even the squirrel not even the squirrel i mean what about you (laughs) no i thought there have been some very interesting images but um nothing you know earth shattering in the way of you know people claiming they're seeing things and that goes for the moon too you know and i know there's probably going to be some people listening that are you know may not like hearing that um that really do believe there's things on the moon and you know maybe there is i don't know um but i really do think that's part of you know what i was talking about prior that uh, we're just you see something and you just you know it's an evolution uh trait it's a, a trait for our evolution that keeps us safe is to be able to see something and quickly make it into an object that we're familiar with and, you know, to, to some of these people, I mean, what I would say, too, is that, you know, all of these people are very human and they're, they're scientists. And, and I may have a different perspective because I've interacted with these people quite a bit. And, you know, my job is often to interview them and question them. So um, and, and, you know, I get, I've gotten to visit um, some of these places and everything. And people are just, you know, there's a very there's a spirit of of openness um, especially NASA, these people take their role as public servants very seriously. They work for the public. Um, they work for the taxpayer, and that's how they see their job and their role. Um, they're very serious uh, people who um, are loyal to science and, and the public. And I think when you meet these people, you know, it really gives you a different perspective, especially on, on any kind of conspiratorial ideas. Um, they're, they're just good people who are looking for answers and uh, are willing to work with everyone. I mean, it's one of the rare fields where we have scientists, um, you know, Russians and Chinese and, uh, 
and Europe all working very, very closely together um, to get somewhere mm -hmm. together, regardless of political differences. So um, I don't know. There, it, it's it's an inspiring environment. I have always felt when I dealing with NASA because um, they're just um, it, it's like the right stuff or or something. It's it's unique. That, you know, these people are sacrificing a lot. They're sacrificing uh, to go to space and to learn about space and to work for, especially in NASA's case, for the American people to do this. So I have a lot of respect yeah. for them. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, I wonder how many of these scientists that are in, you know, working in the space industry were first influenced by science fiction. I bet it's pretty high. Yeah, a whole lot. And and I always ask, and a lot of them say, yeah, definitely. I mean, and some people are almost like, duh, you know. For a lot of them, <laughs> it's like a no-brainer. And I feel uh, kind of dumb because they'll be like, mm, well, what do you think? You know, they, they take it like that's a kind of a dumb question because, of course, they were inspired <laughs> by sci-fi and Star Trek and, Trek and mm -hmm. Flash Gordon for the older people and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So... Um, I don't know how much time we have left, but I would love to hear, you know, a synopsis of your whole entire trip to Budapest and how that all went. Okay, yeah, I'll try to do that. So this is, of course, for National Geographic and for the Mars Television Program, which I'm extremely enthusiastic about. And I think that a lot of my listeners would be, too, because I think a lot of you are, are space enthusiasts like I am. And what's exciting about this show to me is that it's a return to smart television. And I think you and, and the listeners can understand what I mean by that because television has gotten really dumbed down. I mean, even the UFO shows are, are less about the facts and more about the goofy stuff you can make up, uh, more about make-believe and everything, which has been frustrating because it, it's gotten dumbed down. And shows like this and another National Geographic show, Genius, um, are to me, a return to smart television. And uh, with Mars TV, it's like a documentary. It's kind of like Band of Brothers was, where you have these scientists and stuff come on and they talk about the space program. And then they cut to dr the dramatic scene, the story of these people going to Mars. Um, but it's set in 2033, and it's as if, you know, Elon Musk and, and some other international groups got together to... Uh, work together to go to Mars and to create a, a habitat, a colony on Mars, which of course is Elon Musk's goal. And the thing is, is that, you know, it's bringing to people that this is close. Elon Musk is deadly serious about doing this in the next 10 years. And that is what he's working towards. And now many people feel that he is going to do it. So this is going to happen. And I think that's what's exciting. It's, it's, that it's showing the public that, look, people, this is for real. Not only we're going to go to Mars, but for me, what I like about the show is we've got a lot to figure out if we're going to do that. And there's a lot of ethical and social um, issues that we need to tackle if we're going to do that. So the show's great because it makes people think and it makes people understand that. Like these ethical issues we've, we were bringing up with terraforming and stuff like that. So it, it's 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 a really cool show, and during the first season, you know, they were when they cut back and forth between 2016, which is the real stuff, 
you know, interviews with real scientists. They're also showing SpaceX progress. So they have cameras in their command center when one of their rockets explodes and you see the workers and their face and you see like this, this dread and sorrow, you know, when the rocket and it's just a raw, these raw emotions. And then later on when, when their first rocket lands successfully on its own, you see that too. And then you have the scientists kind of, um, you know, explaining why this is such a huge deal that Elon Musk was able to, you know, have a rocket land um, so we could reuse it. And I don't know about you, but it is like the old space movies, you know, where right. a rocket takes off and it lands. By it out. Yeah. And that's what the, the rockets are going to be like. The full rocket lands on the moon, takes off. Yeah. So we got to see a lot of the, the first we went to the set. Um, they shoot at Corda Studios, which is outside Budapest, um, where a lot of shows are being shot. And if you go to my Facebook, you can see more pictures and some of the other sets we got to visit for oh, yeah. some of the other shows. But um, um, they shot The Martian there. And so hmm. it's a beautiful place. So we got to go in the sound stages. They've got these different Mars bases set up. And I got some pictures of the Mars bases uh, on my Facebook. And then... We also got to interview the uh, talent, the the cast, um, and then we got to see while they were shooting outside on their outdoor set. They let me post a video of them shooting and, and some other pictures as well. We got to meet the designers, the, the people designing the structures, and then also people designing like the costumes and everything. Because, you know, Stephen, this guy that I talked about who wrote this book, he's like the main consultant for the science, and he is like... You know, they all said, well, we were doing it this way, but Stephen made us change it. So, I mean, it just shows you mm-hmm. the science is very serious. They're taking it very serious, and everything That's is great. based on real science, what it would really be like and what you would need. Um, we got to meet the showrunner, Dee Anderson, I think her last name is. She worked on ER and stuff. So she's the only one who – she's like this tough lady. She is so cool. And she was uh-huh. the only one who was like – Sometimes Stephen tells me, you know, this is what the science would be like, but I got to tell him, hey, we got to drama this. We got to make it interesting, you know, so um, we got to add some drama. And so uh, there, there's that. But the, the drama, the pieces that they chose, I think, are genius because they're, they're really these serious, serious ethical and, and social issues that we need to consider that they're tackling in the second season. Um, so it was cool. The cast was extraordinary. Half of the cast. The first show season only had like five or six cast uh, members because it was mostly one crew that had went up there. But now they've got this whole settlement. So they've got a larger cast. And so we got we hung out a ton with the cast the whole time because when they're not shooting, they were essentially hanging out with us. And then we also had a couple of social events that were scheduled at uh, one at this nearby winery and then uh, a a riverboat ride on the Danube where I took tons of pictures so people can see some of these beautiful Budapest is an amazing city. It's gorgeous. It's historic. It's absolutely way more beyond much more incredible than, than I expected. So that's yeah. what we did. And then of course, because oh. my beat is mostly science and a couple of the other journalists there were that too. There's only like a dozen journalists, Aaron Sagers, who's spoken at the UFO Congress, who writes for sci-fi wire, but there's a lot of these hosting uh, um, panels and stuff at Comic-Cons and things. He was there. 
Um, so people will see some pictures there. Uh, he's a, he's a buddy. He, he's been to Roswell and, you know, he'll, you'll see him as a, a reoccurring character on my Facebook photos. But, um, <laughs> so it was fun to have, uh, someone there that we knew, but, uh, yeah, I hung out a lot with the scientists and I'll be more writing more about the science of things. But, um, this is the interesting thing when it came to UFOs too, is that it's, it's typically like this, that the scientists are more skeptical, but, the cast is typically super into the topic. So the cast yeah. almost completely uh, were really into UFOs and stuff. So that was fun to talk to them oh. about that kind of thing. But um, I was brought there by ZoomWorks. That's who I work with. And uh, my buddy Brian Booth. And they promote science in in entertainment. So that's why he uh, likes to work with me. And so I then write about interview scientists and stuff. So if people see my Huffington Post stories on all of this stuff, they see that it's usually a science perspective on these different movies and stuff. But, um, yeah, I've got some really exciting things that I'm I'm going to be writing about in September. But uh, as you can see, I don't gush over television shows just because I'm involved. If I didn't like this show, I just thought it was okay. I would be talking about how nice everyone is stuff, but I wouldn't be gushing about the show. But I'm gushing about the show because I think it's it's really important. Wow, that's really great. Now, what was the set like itself? Was there a green screen area too, or was yeah. it just a big open? So I'm going to cut oh. this really short because we're almost out of time. Sorry, oh, guys. Okay. But sure. uh, essentially, yeah, you can see my pictures on Facebook, and that'll answer all your questions. But the outdoor set had these giant, giant green screens, which were hilarious. Um, and then mm -hmm. indoors, they had some big giant green screens also, but um, the sets are extremely elaborate. The flooring on the sets is the same that's in the ISS, so... They were just very elaborate. Wow. So you really feel like you're on a space station when you're in these things. Amazing. But we're about out of time. So just a couple things. Remember, the UFO Congress is coming up. So get your tickets for that. We've got more speakers listed. We'll have some more. UFOcongress.com on our on-demand videos. I've got Jeffrey Bennett up, um, some other videos up. So check that out. Uh, I sent out an email on Friday, so be sure to get on our email list for the latest. And thank you to Caleb Hanks for the opening and close music. Thank you for KGRA for playing the show. And thank you to Martin Willis of Podcast UFO for joining us with the news. Still bad mofo? You're still a bad mofo, my buddy. <sighs> I made it. You right. did it. And then finally, thank you to you, the listeners. So happy to have you here uh, every week. And then, you know, we didn't talk about Spielberg, but that's okay. We'll, I'll get someone. We'll talk about this at the next uh, on the next show uh, because we've got this rendezvous coming up. This, um, uh, you know, Devil's Tower Rendezvous, which is kind of based on the anniversary of Close Encounters. And I'm going to be speaking about Spielberg, some cool stuff. So uh, check that out. And uh, you can find the URL for that on openminds.tv uh, in the event section. But uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us once again. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, adios, muchachos. Bye-bye. <laughs>